It's so good to be with you here tonight. So good to worship with you. So good to be able to bring God's word here to you tonight. Our gospel reading from which our sermon comes from is found in Mark chapter 8. It reads like this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Father, I pray that your Spirit would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the word for us tonight, that you might apply it to our hearts, and that we would be transformed as a result, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> there is a sentence in this passage that has struck me ever since I read it for the first time and every time I've read it since that first time. Now there's a lot in the passage that I just read to you that could be that sentence. But the sentence in the passage that gets me every time is this one. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That sentence just stuns me. It stuns me because just a minute earlier, Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah of God, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world. It stuns me because in Matthew's account of this moment, when Jesus hears Peter tell him that he is indeed the Christ, when he hears Peter get the right answer, he lauds Peter. He says, blessed are you, Simon uh, Bar-Jonah, that was his original name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You could not get a higher compliment than that. And yet in spite of this, I am stunned because this same Peter who confesses Jesus to be Savior and whom Jesus declares will have power over heaven and hell is so upset 
that a moment later he can't help but, quote, rebuke his Lord. The word for rebuke there uh, is the same word that would be used to describe Jesus' rebuke of demons. I mean, it's a super harsh term. It's a, it's, a, it's a word showing an expression of sharp disapproval or criticism. Peter has a sharp disapproval and a sharp criticism for God. Now, the tendency with many preachers when coming across a story like this uh, from Peter is to simply dismiss this as, well, a personality quirk of Peter's. You hear that kind of thing a lot in Christian pulpits. Much ink has been spilled making the case that Peter is impulsive and impetuous and, and has a temper. And, uh, and, and all that stuff is kind of true if you read his story. But as strange as this whole thing before us may seem, I don't think this particular instance only happens to guys like Peter. I think, in fact, we are all capable of one moment extolling our Lord and the next moment rebuking Him. What is it that drives someone like Peter, someone like me, someone like you, to have the chutzpah to actually chide God? To rebuke the Lord of heaven and earth. Well, I think there's a few things that drive us there from our text that we can see. I think, first of all, it's whenever God doesn't live up to our expectations. Whenever God doesn't live up to our expectations, we might be prone to wanting to rebuke him and to tell him what's up. I mean, the reality is all of us, believer and unbeliever alike, no matter where you're at in your walk, whatever, wherever you're at with your faith... Uh, we tend to have a certain conception of how God is supposed to work in this world. If there is a God, then he should be operating a certain way. And though we may confess him as Lord, in fact, when his will differs from our will, well, then we're prone to thinking that there must be something wrong with his will. That was certainly the case here with Peter. You see, Peter and the rest of the disciples had been raised to believe certain things about the Messiah and certain things that would happen when the Messiah, Christ, God, came to earth. Uh, namely, he was going uh, to bring justice by defeating evil. And Lord knows there was tons of evil in the world then. He was going to do this by restoring Israel to its former glory, by conquering Rome, by taking the throne. And he was going to make sure that the righteous finally had the seat of power. He would be king and conquer like David did. That was the conception that they had. That's what they had been taught since they were little kids. But unfortunately, for them, that is not the way this is going to work out. Not yet. Jesus knows that his disciples have this mistaken identity about his ministry. The disciples, you see, it's possible, it is possible to have the right title, but to get the wrong identity. That's what happens to Peter. He's got a, a case of mistaken identity when it comes to Jesus. I read a, a pretty funny story. I actually saw the, the YouTube clip the other day of 
a case of mistaken identity. Uh, in 2006, Apple, the you know the iPhone maker and computer maker and ruler of all things now, it was in a lawsuit with Apple, the record company. That that was the Beatles' former record company. Uh, you know, of course, over the name, like who gets to keep the name, and I'm not sure who won that, but uh, I think they may have settled. But anyhow, at the time, the BBC uh, decided to air a special on the lawsuit, and so they, they invited a, a man named Guy, who was a technology writer and internet expert, for an on-air interview. And that day, uh, the day that Guy arrived in the BBC London studio for the interview, happened to be the same day that another man named Guy arrived at the same London office for a job interview. Well, BBC staffers didn't know the difference, and so they mistook the one guy for the other guy and began making him up and wiring him with a microphone in preparation for a live interview about this lawsuit. And while this happened, Guy Gola, who had shown up for the interview, thought that they were just preparing him for the interview, and he didn't know until, quote, the interview began, which was cameras were on, and... He was being asked questions. And if you go look on the, it's, you can find it on YouTube, Guy Goma. If you look at his face when the interview begins, it is priceless. I mean, he just, you can see, he's just like, huh, they're totally shocked. But he runs with it. That's the amazing thing. Like, he's just like, all right, I'm in it. I'm going to pretend. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go with it. And so, I mean, his replies are completely incoherent. <laughs> The whole time. They're making no sense whatsoever to the questions. I mean, when asked whether he was surprised about the verdict of the legal battle, he replies, I'm very surprised to see this verdict come on me. I was not expecting that. He has no clue what's going on. And unfortunately, in spite of his uh, tremendous composure to go through the interview, poor guy didn't get the job after all, even though he had took one for the team there. You see, the, the BBC, they got the name, they got the title right, they, they, they had the wrong identity. And the same can be true for you and I when it comes to Jesus. We think if Jesus is really for us, then he'll give us success, and when he doesn't, we rebuke him. We think that Jesus exists to give us health and wealth and happiness, but if he doesn't, then we rebuke him. We think that Jesus exists to make us happy, to fulfill our hopes and dreams, to give us everything we ever wanted, and when he doesn't, then, like Peter, we rebuke him. This is why I believe the first thing Jesus does in response to Peter's confession is, quote, strictly charge them to tell no one about him. Why? Because I think Jesus knows that they have a false idea of what it means that the Messiah is here. And if they go saying too much, they're not just going to say Jesus is the Messiah. They're going to say, Jesus is the Messiah and he's coming to kill you. I mean, remember, his, some of his disciples are like, hey, you know, there were some people back there that weren't very nice to us. Can we, can we call down thunder and lightning on them, please? I mean, they were ready for violent revolution. And I think Jesus says, don't tell anybody about me yet. Because you don't have the right idea. So sometimes we rebuke God because he doesn't meet our expectations. But then there's other reasons why we might be prone to rebuking God. We might rebuke him because he just seems too demanding of us. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought that God is just, I mean, frankly, in your, in your most honest times, when you like the stuff that you probably don't want to admit, have you ever just wondered in the back of your mind, like, he seems a little overly strict. I mean, he seems a little too... Restricting, demanding. 
mean, after all, Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Like, there's no wiggle room in that, in that word. There's, like, there's no, like, getting out of that. It's like, that's the, that's the standard. Be perfect. In another place, he says, okay, here's the standard. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself all the time in every way with all of your being. How about love my neighbor some of the time, maybe? Good enough? Nope. All the time. If you look at our passage today, he says to the crowd and his disciples, something that seems a little too demanding, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Where do people go with crosses? They die. They're humiliated. They're naked and they're carrying a cross to their death. This sounds terrible. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it? Really? Come on. Maybe, maybe the standard Jesus is laying out here sounds a little ridiculous. And so like Peter, we might find ourselves rebuking him. We might find ourselves shaking our fist at him when we try to get to that perfect peak and find ourselves failing more often than not. A friend of mine understood this quite well. He was attending a church and was getting to know more and more of who Jesus was. He was a brand new Christian and, and what he was learning all of what God was about. He was familiarizing himself with the commands of God. And, uh, and, and nevertheless, he was noticing that that he constantly still struggled with obedience to God. Like he, he thought he'd get better. He thought he was going to look better. And he found himself like always having this desire inside of him to want to do something wrong. And, and one day I, I asked him how, how it was going. And in a flurry of frustration, he said, you know, I don't know what's up with God. He gives us these commands and he's got to know that I can't follow them. But then he punishes us for it. I mean, how is that fair? And I love what he said. I'm like, that, that is, I so appreciate your honesty. Like, I so appreciate the fact that that, because that is so real. You know who else felt like that at times? One of the great churchmen in history, Martin Luther. You know, Martin Luther, in his early days of his adult life, he was a monk. Before he had his reformation uh, that we just celebrated a few months ago, he was absolutely overwhelmed by the demands of God. So he would spend hours every day confessing his sin to his priest because he knew that in his head he just wasn't perfect enough. And with the words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength running through his head, it became too much. And so he finally get done confessing, thinking that he had probably confessed every little last sin to the priest and then he'd walk away and as soon as he'd walk away he'd remember something else that he hadn't confessed and he'd go right back to the confessional. So much so that the priest he would confess to would say listen, you're good. You don't have to keep coming back. Stop. Like it's, it's, you know, it was just exhausting to him. This is the way Luther describes that time when, when God's demands seemed so overwhelming he said I was myself driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. He was asked once, do you love God? And he said, love God, sometimes I hate Him. And maybe, maybe you've been there before too. God insists 
you must forgive someone that has wronged you. And it seems impossible, so you rebuke him. God calls you to love your enemies, but you can't get past the seeming injustice that that would be, and so you rebuke him. He demands that you not lust after anyone besides your spouse, but you can't seem to stop, and so you rebuke him. And I could go on and on, but you get the idea. Nevertheless, we move on to the main reason, Peter, and, and I would say we, this is really the main reason we're prone to rebuking God, and that is, in the final analysis, the thing that frustrates us the most about this God is that he seems too impotent. If God is God, we think he should eradicate the problems of this world, which he surely can do. And if God is God, Peter thinks he's going to fix the injustices, which he will indeed do. But instead, what Jesus tells us he's all about is just the opposite. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That is a bridge too far for Peter. If you'll allow me, I'd like to do what my impression of what this rebuke from Peter to Jesus may have sounded like. Granted, this is not written down. This is just what I imagine in my mind. As Jesus says, I will be rejected and killed. No. No, Jesus, listen, I followed you around now for quite a while, and you've had us do, frankly, some strange, weird stuff. But I stuck by you through it all. But Lord God, you are delusional. Sorry. You're going to suffer? You're going to be rejected? You're going to be killed? No, no, you're not. I'll make sure of that. The God I serve is not powerless. He is not impotent. Heck, I have followed you because I've seen your power. I mean, you're raising people from the dead, and you're healing people that are deaf, and you're giving sight to the blind. Of course you're powerful. I have seen you do miracles and proven it, that you're powerful over and over and over again. What on earth are you talking about? Now listen very closely, Jesus. I would suggest, unless you want this movement to end real quick, unless you want me and the rest of this group of disciples that have given up a lot to follow you to go back to where we came from, that you march right back out there and reassure your people, reassure us, reassure me that you're mistaken. But he is not mistaken. He is indeed telling the truth. Because though our God may seem impotent and powerless through his suffering and rejection and death on the cross, he knows that the world needs to be reconciled to him. He knows that in order to fix the world, the sins of the world must be atoned for. He knows that for us to have a restored relationship with God, the penalty must be paid. He knows that because we can't meet his perfect demands, he must meet them for us and then credit us with his righteousness. He knows that this is the only 
path to enter into the true kingdom of heaven where all the problems we want eradicated here will finally be gone. He knows that to show us how much he loves us, that he must be willing to die for us. He knows he must defeat death and hell once and for all by rising from the grave. And he knows that the only place that can take place is at the cross. So Peter and we are left with really two options today. The first one is to go with Peter and suggest that there must be some other way. We can rebuke God for his ways and demand that he meet our expectations and lessen his standards and reveal himself more powerfully. We can demand forcefully that the cross must be resisted, but to the one who takes that position, Jesus has a strong word of rebuke himself. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God. The things of God are a cross where redemption happens. But on the other hand, to those who simply accept the scandal of the cross, who know that they need him to sacrifice himself in their place, there is an entirely different word. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Father. We bow before word prayer. Father, the glory that we want to see, if we saw it, would terrify us right now. It's the thing that we see every time in your word, whenever prophets or anybody come across you, whenever you reveal yourself to them in a powerful way, they run, they run for the hills and you have to command them to not be afraid. To be afraid of you is our default. The only way that the fear is taken away and that we can draw near to your throne right now is if it's a throne of grace that's won for us by the cross of Christ. So as scandalous as it might seem, as, as crazy as it might seem to us sometimes to accept your ways that losing is winning and that by a cross victory is attained, help us, Lord, give us faith to receive that, to believe that, to trust you for that. So that we might walk our days with confidence and joy. We ask this in Jesus' name.